Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, joined today by Caitlin Cooper. First of all, Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, it's pretty cloudy. I don't know where it is, how it is where you are, but it's pretty cloudy. So I've oh, it is been most inside definitely today. a cloudy, rainy, nasty day in Toledo, Ohio. And of course, my dog still decided we were going to the dog park anyways on our walk today. But, you know, you, you win some, you lose some, I guess. But uh, what, are, what are we doing today? We, we, got, some, uh, we got some cooking and I'm excited to, to get started and share with people. Right. Okay. So I'm not the traditional host, but just so that everyone can blame me if this is like terrible and you all hate listening to it. Caitlin's tanking the pod. That's what (laughs) I'm already lowering your, no, yes. I'm lowering the expectations ahead of time so that when we rise above it, people will be like, oh, that was great. Almost definitely. (laughs) So basically what we're going to do is instead of doing like traditional player reviews, like we've done the last few seasons, I bullied Mark into doing audio ones with me instead in a podcast series and if some of you probably remember I did like a gallery series last year where I picked just like one play that kind of epitomized a player so what we're going to do is we're starting out with the five guys who are under 25 on the Pacers roster and we're going to have one play one number and one over under for each player that we're going to share with each other and kind of react live to and then I'm sure you know there'll probably be other stats to get mingled in as we talk but that's what we just wanted to do to summarize everybody's season and we're just starting out with these five and we're gonna let mark go first i don't even know who he's picked so this is all completely blind um, to me that's it's i'm excited i'm I'm, you know i'm about to do it on the spot because i know who i want to go with last but first uh we'll start off with alizé johnson because you know i I don't think that there's a ton we have to go over with alizé but i there are some some interesting things that i'm excited to talk about with him um, the play that I chose, it, it was helpful because there really, really wasn't a ton of film I had to go back and watch on Alize. Um, the, from the August 14th game, the throwaway game against the Heat, uh, he gets an offensive rebound about three and a half minutes into the game. Um, oh, no, it's four and a half minutes in the game, 747 mark. You can go and watch it clear as day. Gets an offensive rebound over three guys, uh, well boxed out, completely misses a wide open putback, and then travels. Um, and it, it sounds harsh, but I think that kind of epitomizes what Alize has been in his time with the Pacers so far. I mean, he's, uh, he brings a lot of energy, and you can see the flashes of, as, of his, his athleticism. And I think, I mean, rebounding's definitely been his calling card so far. Um, but he still is just really – he doesn't have any of the other skills that he needs to be super effective uh, laid out yet. And I think that really epitomized that for me. Right. That That's a good pick because not only because it was his best game of the season, but mm-hmm. like you say, like the one thing with Alizé is he does have a crystallized skill. Like we know that he can leave his rebounding area and go crash the glass. And what do you finish with that in that game? Like 17 rebounds? Yeah. yeah it's, I yeah. think 12 points, 17 boards. And obviously, you know, that wasn't like the best example of a game because both teams were running deep into their benches, but still like, you know, when he gets out there, whether it's summer league or whatever it's going to be that he's going to attack the glass. And, you know, I don't, I think it was a bit telling. I wrote this a little bit before um, the bubble play started that there toward the end of the season when TJ Warren and Doug McDermott and Brogdon were all out, the Pacers assigned Alizé to the G League for that game against the Bulls and started Brian Bowen instead. And like, it's not even just that they gave Brian Bowen the opportunity to start in theory, thinking that he's, you know, better fit as a spot up shooter, but the sense that like, if, if that wasn't going to be Alizé's opportunity to, you know, break into the rotation or to try to show what he can do, like, when is it going to be? Yeah. And, and this being the last year of his contract and they also played him in the G league showcase, which is something they did with Joe young the last year before he was out too, because there's tons of international scouts generally at that. And it kind of gives that guy an opportunity to, to latch on potentially somewhere else. So I could be wrong, but, I wouldn't be surprised if if Alize doesn't come back, but I am interested to know what number you picked. Yeah, well, my number was thirty four percent, which is what he shot from the three point line in the G League this year, and it's oh, so, so I kind of cheated. It's two numbers, but it's the same number essentially because he shot thirty eight percent from the three point line in the G League last year. And so my point was, 
Um, he has not shot a lot of threes. He shot 10 total threes in his NBA time. And if he's going to stick in the league, uh, he has to develop a shot. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think I would be kind of surprised if he's back with the Pacers next year. But you never know. The cap's going to be crazy. Maybe they just re-sign him for the hell of it. But, I mean, he's, uh, he's older than I actually thought. Uh, he's going to be 24 next year. Um, I had to check so, if he was one of the people under 25 before I titled this five <laughs> under 25. Yeah, he it was. So, yeah, he was, like, deceptively not as young as I thought. And so I, I just think there are flashes of stuff, like we mentioned, that, that could lead him to sticking in the league. But especially like you, you mentioned with him not getting the chance with everybody out and Brian Bowen got called up. I mean, I think that's pretty telling um, whether or not he's he might actually be around next year or might get a shot. Yeah, and I think, too, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy when these guys go down to the G League because when Alizé is playing in those games – I've watched quite a few of them. Like He looks like um, Sean Kemp with a three-pointer in the G League. Right, right. But, I mean, they'll post him a lot, and he's good. Like, he's pretty decent. If he draws a double, he can throw a dart to the opposite corner. Like, his passing feel isn't bad. But the, the problem with that is, is he's he's been dominant enough at the G League level that he draws a double team in the post. And that's a, a decent mode of offense for the Mad Ants. But is it necessarily conducive to what type of player he would be at the next level? Like, I don't know about that. And, and – while he did shoot threes, you'll notice at that level and sometimes when he gets put in with the Pacers that if he gets closed out on, the other struggle he has is his footwork when he gets to the rim. He ends up taking like really wide angle hook shots because he doesn't get his other foot in front and his shoulder and so that he can get in all the way to the basket. And his finishing when he wasn't doing putbacks was was not very good at the G League level. Like it was under 50% just on point blank layups. So that, that, to me, what you just said and that skill were, are more uh, telling of what he would need to be if he stood in as a, as a four-man for the Pacers or any team that he would be on. But I understand why Steve Gansey looked to post him because it was you know, a, a, a way to, for the Maddians to rack up wins. But it's sometimes in the case of when you're at the G League level, are you, are you too good to get better? Because you're going to see coverages that you're not going to see at the next level. And then he wasn't really getting to work on – like counters against single coverage because he would draw a double team. But yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really great point because, you know, I think especially looking at development, I mean, it's hard because I think the Mad Ants, just from what I know, they're, they're pretty well structured as a G league team. Um, but from, I think, I think it was Amin El Hassan on, uh, I think he was on David Aldridge's podcast and they were talking about G league development and how, um, guys are, you know, for the most part, you have a lot of guys just looking for their own shot because they're trying to make it to the next level. So it's hard to um, try and really incorporate what's going to be going on uh, with the system up above. And, you know, you see a team like the Raptors with Raptors 905. They've really structured that well and made that happen. And um, so, I, yeah, I, I agree. It's hard to hard to make that happen, especially with – I mean, he's really strong. I think that's one thing that I always notice. He's very strong uh, for his size. And so you could totally rely against that, against some, some weaker athletes or, uh, or defenders in, in the G League, and, and he routinely does. Um, so going into the over-under, um, well, this one, I guess, could just be for the league in general because, you know, we, we both kind of have come to the conclusion that he's probably not going to be with the Pacers next year. Um, but I, what the over-under for minutes per game that he plays in the NBA next year, I said it at 10. Would you take the over-under on that? Well, that, 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 I mean, I really want to smash the under, but part of me is like, if he only plays like a couple games and, oh, there, was, and there was injuries and he like loads up in one or two games and plays like 20 minutes, then it's entirely possible that he could average 10 minutes per game. But if it's a normal scenario, yeah, I'm going to take the under, I think. Yeah, I think I'll take the under as well. Um, this wasn't my most inventive over under. I couldn't, you know, just thinking, to, I was like, how many how many contracts does he have in the NBA? And then I was like, you know, that's a little harsh. So we're not going to say that one. But uh, I was, if I would have done it, I probably would have gone with how many uh, seasons left with the Pacers. But so you were nicer oh, than me. You're nicer than me. I, you know, cause one of the guys I have coming up, I, you know, I went a little, little, a little tough. So I was grading out Alice next and I was like, you know what? I don't want to seem like a complete asshole on the podcast. So we got to be careful here. <laughs> okay. So, I will introduce my next player. This is tough. We, who do I want to pick? I'll go with, I'll, let's go with Edmund Sumner. That's okay. who I had. And 
I apologize to everyone because I'm going to be clicking my mouse very shortly, but I just need to give an accurate description of this play because not only do I think that it says a lot about the state of the bench towards the end of the season, but also the state of the entire Miami Heat series. So here we go. TJ McConnell is bringing the ball up the floor. Justin Holiday is cross-matched with Bam guarding him. So Justin, for whatever reason, decides, ah, I'm going to screen for the ball. So Bam has now jumped out onto TJ McConnell. Jakar Sampson is there to his left and is like, hmm, should I screen? Should I not screen? <laughs> and Kelly <laughs> Olenek is his man, and it's like, Jakar, set the screen. But no, he backs out and just exits the action. Like middle so, schoolers at a dance. Yeah. So now, yes, so now we have TJ McConnell driving the right side of the floor. And Edmund Sumner is in the right corner. Tyler Harrow comes all the way off the corner to converge on TJ McConnell, who passes it to Edmund Sumner in the corner, who then loops in on a drive. And Bam and Tyler Hero both ignore TJ McConnell to converge on Edmund Sumner, who throws a layup straight into the air that hits nothing, and the Heat are off to the races the other way. So, oh, sorry, my audio about kicked down. So basically what we need to see there is that, first of all, why were the Pacers um, continuing to use BAM in the screening? But beyond that, <laughs> like just the muddledness of working through a screening defense, but also that Edmund Sumner spent almost the entirety of that series in offense in the corner. I looked up on Synergy before we hopped on here, and he never used a single possession as the pick-and-roll ball handler in any of those four games that he made. Well, he only made appearances in three, but in the three games he played, was never used as, as a pick-and-roll ball handler. Was 0 of 3 on spot-ups, and he like he didn't even move out of the corner. Like They didn't even use him as a cutter or a slasher in any way. Like They basically just plopped him in the corner, and that's where he was. And like nobody was going to guard he or TJ McConnell. Like I don't know why the Heat would do that. They're going to shrink the floor. So... They didn't play a ton of minutes together, but they were minus three in those minutes when they were out there. So I'll let you react to that possession. Um, I would say automatically, I remember that possession because I remember shouting at my TV, Jakar, why aren't you screening? And uh, yeah, it was, he's so confusing to me, especially, you know, that play. I, I think about all the times where he's driving to the rim and it looks so picturesque, like he gets separation um, and I mean, he just flashes that incredible athleticism and his speed. And then it, just what happens at the rim is a total, it's, it's vexing to watch sometimes, like, um, not to just totally gripe, but I mean, it's, it's, it's tough seeing the way that he tries to finish at the rim sometimes. Oh like, yeah. I mean, he's like electricity running through a court in transition. Like you love watching that guy play wide receiver, but then sometimes yeah. he can be like a meteor hurling towards earth. And it's like, you want to tell him that the ball's an egg and put it up softly up there. But I mean, it was more like just the construction of, of the lineup, which is somewhat a function of, of like we've harped on millions of times that Sabonis wasn't there, but my one number for him is, is, I mean, it's two numbers put together. It's one of six. And that's what Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson were against him when he was their when he was their primary defender over like about 44, 34 possessions, I think. 34 to 40 possessions. I didn't have that exactly titled. But the point being is I think that Edmonds still could have been useful. Like, I mean, it was bizarre the way he fell out of the rotation completely the one game. Mm -hmm. I mean, he racked up a lot of minutes in game one because Victor got poked in the eye and Aaron Holiday was in foul trouble, but then he didn't play. And then he barely played in the next game. But uh, I thought that they should have – I still think that looking back on it that they should have thought of starting Edmund just because Justin Holiday would have fit better with McConnell off of the bench and you could have just used Edmund Sumner to hawk those two guys as shooters. And in the minutes when Sumner played with Brogdon Oladipo, Warren and Turner are the usual four starters. They were plus eight. So, I mean, I understand completely closing games with Justin and, and even in the bench minutes, whether, you know, hero or Robinson was out there just constantly have one of the two of them on them. But I thought that was a little bit of an underutilization of what they could have done there to preserve some of, Oladipo's energy. I mean, because not only did they shoot poorly when he was guarding him, they only got six shots. Like, and again, that's not tons of minutes, but they weren't getting looks off because he was doing a better job sticking through on some of the handoffs and whatnot. 
That's I, I really like that number for a lot of reasons. Um, the first thing I think of is uh, obviously I, I know you've been on their show before. I was listening to DNVR's uh, show this morning uh, about, you know, obviously the, the game uh, that the Clippers played last night. And they were talking about Jeremy Grant and how well he's he played in the last series and in this series, but how his offense has suffered given his defensive assignment against Kawhi. Um, and obviously that's a, that's a normal thing. And I, I'm going somewhere with this. With Edmund Sumner, we're not expecting anything of him on offense except maybe a transition dunker layup. And so you think of how well he, he guarded in the first game. And it's just – it's confusing because, you know, I think part of why Vic and you, you've, you've talked about this as well. Part of why Vic and all, you know, all the wing defenders maybe struggled a little bit offensively was because of how hard they were having to compete on the defensive end just to get over screens. So if you have even just the fact that Edmund, yes, he's going to be probably you're lucky if he's a neutral on offense. Um, but if he'd just been out there for 15 or 20 minutes, even giving, you know, 95% of his effort, uh, or 95% of the energy on the that he has on the court to to keeping Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero and Goran Dragic, you know, off the three point line that that could have made a world of difference. And we, it's even more confusing because of how well it worked in the first game when he got all that playing time. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I remember talking to you about that on our game two podcast about how confused we were that Edmund Sumner like hardly even played, especially that he didn't even start. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that that point. Well, yeah, because what else is interesting is is if he's out there with Brogdon and Oladipo, he's such a natural cutter. Like he's mm-hmm. great at slipping split cuts and slashing in, and that's going to be easier with those two out there because people aren't going to be sagging off of them quite as much as what it was necessary to stash he or TJ McConnell into the corner. And I do think he can do a little bit more as a ball handler, because when he played heavy minutes in that game against Chicago, he did a pretty good job making reads against Chicago's blitzing defense and getting the ball to Miles Turner. I mean, he's a little bit different when he runs pick and roll because he likes to get really deep and then pass it back for a guy to take like a step into a shot. But I think he could probably do a little bit more on ball than what we've seen. Although in those laps, like I said, like it would be easy for him to just do straight line drives when he's out there with those other starters. And, and what you said about Goran's a good point too, because I almost picked a different possession because he was guarding Goran at the point of attack with um, Brogdon guarding Jimmy on one possession and Jimmy went and screened for the ball and they switched it. So then it wasn't, you know, Brogdon getting, blown by at the point and it wasn't Aaron getting bullied on a switch like the two of them were able to easily switch that and I thought that they could have done more with switching in that series too or more strategic switching defensively mm-hmm. than what they did but Most moving definitely. on actually moving on. so I do have a quick question for you though um have you first of all have you ever seen a red money ball before no I have not oh okay well there's basically the idea of it is um the the thing I'm thinking of there's a player who the, the front office really wants to play, right? And the coach is refusing to because there's a player ahead of him who he thinks is going to result in more wins right away. Um, so the front office, after repeated attempts to try and get the coach to, to play the guy, just cuts the guy ahead of him or it outright trades him. And I think of that with Edmund Sumner and TJ McConnell, not in terms of, you know, we're, we're not really talking about TJ today, but I wonder so much about that because I agree, you know, you see some of the things that Ed can do on ball. And he's still a work in progress, but un- un- unless he gets more opportunity to do some of the things that are not going to happen if he's playing with TJ McConnell, frankly, I mean, cause if TJ's out there, he has to be on ball. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I-, I definitely think about that and I wonder what Ed's place is moving forward. Yeah. I mean, they did a couple things like during the regular season, I was encouraged because even more than what you ever saw in Philadelphia, they would use TJ McConnell as a screener and certain plays. But again, because Sabonis wasn't out there, like some of the ways they were using him as a screener weren't going to be particularly fruitful against the way Miami was guarding. But what you said is a perfect segue into my over under, because here's what I'm hitting you with guards in front of him in the rotation next season. (laughs) When Jeremy Lamb is healthy, I've set the line at 4.5. Ooh. Oh, that is a good. Okay, so Vic, maybe uh, Brogdon. I think is almost definitely. I mean, there's no question he's here. Um, Jeremy, TJ, Aaron. Okay, so four and a half. 
Would TJ count as a half? Because he can't, or I don't know. How, what, 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 what consummates a half a guard? I think that's my first Well, it's basically you think all five of them are going to be okay. ahead of it, right, or right. you don't. Okay. Oh, man, that's a good question. I, if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said the over, but I'm actually, I'm going to take the under. I'll take the under. Okay. So what is your reasoning though? My reasoning is, are you factoring in the potential that maybe Victor isn't on this roster or I think that's part of the potential. Jeremy Lamb gets packaged with somebody else or I'm factoring in a lot of things. I think that's possible. I just think, especially looking at the off season, I look at what KP said during his presser and my, my opinion off of, you know, if a GM is going to say that the trade market's going to be active in terms of talking about the whole league, I think that's hinting at a little bit that the Pacers are going to be active. Um, not to put words in his mouth, but that's just, I don't think he would have said that if there wasn't any inkling there. Um, and obviously, you know, from, from everything that we know uh, and that has been reported, that's, you know, that's going to be the truth. Um, and one thing that I think is really interesting that got brought up, but uh, it was on Locked On, uh, Tony and Adam were talking about it, and they, they talked about the, the possibility of uh, TJ McConnell's uh, option not being picked up for next year. It's not an option, but his, his money's not fully Partially guaranteed. guaranteed. Yeah. yeah. So there's that potential. Um, I just think there's enough variability. I, did, I just do. Not, I would be very surprised if they don't pick up his option for next yeah. year because even without Nate, I mean. Yeah, I mean, TJ definitely had his struggles in the playoffs for a variety of reasons, but I just think that even if you're looking at – even if they're like, well, TJ, we're going to keep you in the original role that we told you you would have when we signed you as a third-string point guard, it doesn't hurt to have a guy like that around that if somebody gets hurt, you know can immediately come in and run offense. So I would be very surprised if he isn't on the roster. Now, that doesn't mean that he necessarily holds the exact same spot depending upon what type of system the new coach would run, but – I expect that he will still be around. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And also, um, I liked your point about Jeremy potentially getting packaged. As much as I like him and um, what he's capable of doing, and I hope that he's coming back from his injury okay, and it seems like it's going great. Um, but you look at just the way that the roster is constructed, you have a ton of guys with upper-level mid-tier deals that are, you know, one of them has to get moved. But if you're trying to get somebody who is, uh, you know, maybe of the same – ilk as a player or better um just speaking in terms of Vic I mean you have to move Jeremy Lamb's contract or Doug McDermott's because those are the only two um, salary matches. yeah those are the only two real salary matchers that and it's it's we don't have the same problem as Boston it's not as bad uh but it's very similar because you have a lot of pretty close to minimum deals and then uh like those two mid-tier salaries and then everything else is uh you know higher level deals but yeah I agree what are you taking the over under I I think I want to lean the under just because I want to factor in all of the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I just think there's too much uncertainty for me to feel safe with the over. I agree. But, I think it's it's a safe bet to to feel unsafe. But who we got next? Oh, well, this one is the exciting one. Uh, we're going to talk about TJ Leaf really quick. Really quick. Yeah. Um, so my – bear with me for a second. The play that I chose – uh, that epitomized TJ Leaf's season was on August 1st against the Philadelphia 76ers when he dunked in air quotes on Joel Embiid. Um, and it just like, it felt weird, you know, not, not like, like I, I didn't feel excited for him because it felt almost patronizing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and that sounds so mean, but uh, like, it was like a Hubie he, Brown. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Like I felt like, um, it just didn't seem like if, okay, you know, if, if, if Jakar Sampson yams on Joel, like that's okay. I'm, I'm getting excited. That's awesome. Uh, but him doing it just felt like it feel you, I think you actually put it out on Twitter that it was cor- It felt corny the way that he ran back down the court. And I'm not, we're not meaning that to tear into him, but it's just, that's how his time has felt with the Pacers. Like um, outside his first season. I mean, he didn't even play that much his first season. He showed like, a little bit, um, but off the off off that play, that just like made me feel the entire uh, TJ Leaf experience just feeling kind of like eh, like you know I, I didn't exactly think yeah. about OG Ananobi right after that happened, but not too long after. 
I mean, TJ is his trajectory is just so strange because when mm-hmm. he was a rookie, like you say, he didn't play a lot of minutes. It wasn't a lot of shot attempts, but he hit open threes and his shot form looked relatively normal. Like he didn't have the quickest release. And that leads me to believe that in between his rookie and sophomore seasons that he tinkered with the release to an extent and to quicken it and didn't have quite as much legs there. And that led to it getting flatter because since mm-hmm. he's been in the, la- the league, his, his shot has just gotten progressively flatter. And he said he wanted to address that before this season started and it never really happened. But what we said earlier with Alizé, like, and and it's, yeah, I mean, you bring up a highlight, but the point with TJ is, what is his crystallized skill at this point? Like, I don't think you can point to one thing and be like, yeah, that's what TJ does. Because ahead of this restart, I probably would have told you he's pretty good at looping in from the perimeter and getting offensive rebounds, keeping the ball high, and just using his length and his long arms to drop in shots around the rim. But then he gets down there to Orlando and he looks a little bit heavier, if we're being honest. No, that was the first thing that I noticed when he took the court. He wasn't getting like, and I don't know if that was like an intentional so he wouldn't get pushed around as much, but it hampered his ability to get up off the floor because I don't know what your number is going to be, but I have to share this number because I find it to be ridiculous. He had in between the seeding games and the scrimmages, he had his shot blocked six times prior to going to Orlando. He had his shot blocked five times for the entire year and considerably more minutes. So like, I don't know what occurred during those four months, but it's like every time he came back, like something weird was about his game. And I don't even know like what his one marketable skill would be because it's not like you can look at him and be like, okay, well I'm going to play him at the four and he can knock down a three. Or we can use him in situations as, you know, like an inverse pick and roll ball handler to put fours in weird positions. Like he's not going to do any of those things. He's basically a guy that has to play around the basket at this point. And he got his shot blocked six times. So it just, yeah. it, it is what it is. It must be said. And, and I've said it. So Yeah, no, I, uh, it's, it's weird too, because especially like he's in, it's funny because when, especially when you talk about 13, 14, uh, like that season and, you know, a couple of years after when Golden State comes about, you used to talk about tweeners in terms of a guy like Thad. You know, Thad used to be like the prime version of a tweener. Um, and now when we look at tweeners, it's guys like TJ who are four or fives is somewhere in between uh, where he's not quick enough to guard fours on the perimeter. He's definitely not strong enough to, to guard fives on the inside and has no real rim protection ability. I mean, him in pick and roll defense is just like, oh my god, it's uh, it's 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 pretty gross. Um, <laughs> sorry, TJ, but my number moving on. My number is forty three. Do you know what the forty three is for? Oh no, I have no idea. The forty three is for DNPs this year. Oh yeah, which, that yeah. solid number. Solid <laughs> I number. was pretty proud of that one. Um, yeah, it's. It's funny because he would go down and he would, like, by all accounts, just murder the G League. He played really darn well in the G League. Um, you know, he started this year playing a little bit. Uh, and Sabonis and, and Miles Turner had those injuries early. Um, and so he got some time there. And then after that, I mean, he just accrued DNPs like no tomorrow. Um, so that number really sticks out for me and, and for TJ in general. The other number I looked at was, uh, was 18 for where he was drafted. And then looking at the six guys after him who could have been drafted, that would have been markedly better. But you but know. you wanted to not make us so sad. So I did not want to make us to sad. go with the DMPs, anyways. Yeah. Okay, so hit me with the over under. I'm ready. I'm the over under. I have it at fifty. For how many NBA games does does TJ Leaf play from here on out? Oh, I'm smashing the under. I, I am gotta... also smashing the under. Yeah, like I I have to hit the under there. I mean, the only way that changes is. If they move, I mean, I, I don't even think it's going to change then because I would address, I would think they would address it in some other way. But I mean, the only way I would see that shifting is if they move Turner or Sabonis, Goga is your backup big, and then one of them gets hurt and you need to play somebody at backup five for an extended period. And then it's like, well, we're already playing TJ because I mean, let's face it, they picked up his option, which if we go back and retcon that a little bit, like that was kind of weird from the beginning because they they were pretty confident they'd be over the cap, but they settled his option when things were still really unsettled with Sabonis's extension. Mm -hmm. So 
my thinking is like, yeah, it doesn't hurt to take a risk on somebody when you know you're already going to be over the cap. Take Pick the option, I suppose. But when they didn't even know definitively, I mean, Sabonis was being somewhat passive aggressive at the one practice about, you know, I, I now know how they feel about me. Like that wasn't a guarantee that they were going to get that extension done, or at least it didn't seem like it was. And then to take TJ's 4.3, I think it's a $4.3 million option next year. Like that's a hefty price. And like what we said before, like if you're looking at Alizé and Leaf, like aside from the fact that, that you're probably not going to play Alizé at small ball five, like ever, um, would you rather have Alizé at like a vet min deal next year if they re-signed him or TJ Leaf at $4.3 million? to just take a roster spot? I mean, oh, like Alizé. Not, not like a rotation, regular rotation player for either one of them, but wouldn't you just rather have Alizé on a vet min deal than, Most definitely. than TJ? I mean, I would think. Yeah, unequivocally. But, I mean, I don't, I don't really see either one of them having much of an upward trajectory here, but I mean, it's a little bit strange in, in retrospect because they were like um, Solomon Hill had a really bad summer league and they're like, ah, oh, we're out on Sol- Solomon Hill. Like that's just it there. And, and then obviously he way overproduces in that Raptor series and gets yeah. the bag from the Pelicans. But like, I'll, I'll never they, forget when TJ I saw the some, deal that Solomon Hill got. I, was I like, mean, TJ had some rough summer league moments and, and then they were like all over hyping him at, at prior to this season. Like everyone was talking about who's impressed at, at open gym workouts. And they're all talking about TJ. And then he just, he looked like this pretty much the same guy, but yeah. Anyways, to move on to my next person, we are bringing to you Goga. And let me tell you, I had trouble deciding which side of the coin I wanted to go here with. But ultimately, because I need to tell a wider narrative, once again, I apologize for my clicking mouse, but to just to telestrate this for you all. We have Goga playing against the Phoenix Suns in the bubble. The Pacers or I mean, not the Pacers, the Suns, Aiton and Saric are in horns, Ricky Rubio with the ball. We have Jakar Sampson guarding Saric, Goga guarding DeAndre Aiton. Ricky Rubio goes off of Saric's side. So Jakar Sampson's in a drop, corralling with TJ McConnell fighting back over. So what Goga basically is being put in the position to do is have to guard Aiton rolling and Saric popping at the same time because he's getting stressed effectively as, as the tagger. So envision in your mind that Goga has Aiton on the tag and Ricky Rubio has picked up his dribble, okay? He's getting ready to make a pass, but he hasn't let go of the ball yet. And yet, Goga releases the tag and runs to Saric before the ball is out of Ricky Rubio's hands for a wide-open dunk for Aiton. And that's just – that is where Goga is at defensively. Um, I looked at the numbers. This isn't my one number, but just to add some context here, before they kind of played those two rec league games at the end of bubble play against the Heat and and the Rockets, the Pacers gave up 117 points per 100 in the very sparse minutes that Goga played. But, I mean, there was he came out. Like, Nate pulled him out of the game the second after this play happened. And later on in the game, he's guarding um, – Cameron Payne in a drop and Cameron Payne's going in for a floater and he literally turns his back around from the ball to go run at the roller. And like, there's just a lot of work that he has left to do on the defensive end for you to have felt good. I mean, this is why I don't think that they could have moved Turner or Sabonis at the trade deadline because it just didn't look like Gogo was ready. And to tell my wider story here of what my long winded thing is trying to get to is that they had moments during the regular season where even after they started staggering Miles and Sabonis more, there were places where Goga could have played, but they didn't really let him play through mistakes. Like they were playing the Hawks and Turner and Sabonis were both in foul trouble. So there's like three minutes to go on the half. Like Goga can play. They put Goga out there and the Hawks go on like a six to two run and he's out in 59 seconds. Like it's just done. Like you're not closing the half and they put TJ Leaf in to finish. And while I understand that you want to teach like the young guys accountability, it also didn't get Goga in a place to be ready. And I mean, his development has kind of been squashed to an extent because he wasn't at summer league. 
he got hurt in the bubble, so he didn't get to play or train right away. And then his minutes were so, like, early in the season he got minutes because Sabonis and Turner had some injuries. But then once Nate decided to go with more of a split decision, there was roughly about, like, an average of five leftover minutes at the center position the rest of the year if 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 Goga was lucky. And a lot of times he didn't even get those, or they would just, you know, cover him up with Turner and Sabonis anyways. So I'll let you react to that large – stream of consciousness I just uttered out of my mouth no that's uh I I appreciate that play in a way where I obviously I don't appreciate the play because it was a poor result but uh in you know I just mentioned how poor uh TJ Leafs pick and roll defense is and now we're talking about Goga Bataze so it's uh it's a totally different animal um yeah I I mean I remember watching that Suns game and that was definitely not one of Goga's brighter moments uh, as, a, as a defender this year. Um, oddly enough, he had apparently decided to become the Anthony Davis stopper a couple games later. Um, but yeah, just looking at that play, it's it's telling. And I agree. I think you look at, it, obviously, Jakar was playing the four a lot of the time, but you look at the moments where Goga could have had opportunities throughout the year. And now, you know, that was part of um, that was a Nate staple, you know, not wanting to play a young guy and he would rather play an established veteran who knows what they're doing a little bit more. Um, and you, you just think maybe if Goga had gotten 200 more minutes during the regular season, um, how does that impact things? And it you know, probably doesn't impact the playoffs at all, but maybe it just his development would be different. Um, just getting more opportunities to set screens. Like if, if you could have more, like he, he was starting to set screens better in, in the, the, the seeding games, he actually like made contact on one, which was, I remember I, I hit Tom up right away. I was like, did you see that? Or was I, did I, did I miss something? What happened? Goga made contact on a screen. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just interesting to look at because you're trying to not be critical because of, you know, he's a young player. He's still learning things, but then I think it's almost right. Not, not that it's on the coaching staff, but to an extent you kind of, reap what you sow, I think is the way you would put it. Um, maybe if Goga plays more during the regular season, you don't have that possession against Phoenix or it's maybe he'll leave the tiger, but he goes to Rubio instead of going off Aiden or something. I don't know, but yeah, I, I, I think that's a really right. I mean, he just question. has to wait until the ball's in the air and then that way he can make a choice to either close out to Sarich or to stay attached. But I mean, that's all, like you say, it's feel and he, his rhythm was very disrupted throughout the season. And if you had watched, I mean, I don't know, you might have, but um, I watched some of his his EuroLeague games after the Pacers drafted him. And the one thing when you watched, especially Mega Baymax, a lot of times they sat in a zone or they did a lot of switching that even included switching him onto the ball, which obviously mm-hmm. you're not going to be switching him one five switches in the NBA, but he didn't have a, they didn't do a lot of drop coverage. So there was going to be a, a degree of, of learning curve and he didn't get assigned to a lot of games in the G League either. So it feels like there's not a really good way to develop Miles Turner, Goga, and Sabonis all at the same time. I mean, and that's just a function. And I'm not necessarily saying like, oh, get rid of somebody because you need to develop Goga. Like, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm just saying that that was a factor of what their situation at the center position was. But my one number, which you kind of led into it, was that he logged zero minutes in the playoffs. Like, that wasn't even something that they were willing to consider. And and you also touched on this, like against the Lakers, I thought it was somewhat encouraging because they had a possession where a play broke down and he went and set an intuitive screen for TJ um, Warren to be able to back cut to the basket, which wasn't something you would have seen him do earlier in the year. Like, I think he doesn't have a bad sense. Like you see him at the G league level. He has uh, a good feel for passing, especially when they lift him up into the high post area to find cutters. Um, his, his reality as a three point shooter is still very hypothetical. I think he shot like 19% from three for the season. He was hotter at the beginning of the year, but I think, I think he has a three point shot. It just hasn't materialized yet Mm -hmm. fully, but, um, to go back to the number, uh, Jakar, while, like you say, he's a more seasoned veteran, he was probably going to be in the right places at the right time. Like, I'm not going to probably be pointing out like this egregious defensive possession for Jakar Sampson, but like the Pacers were struggling to find points. And the other thing that they were struggling against the heat was they had zero roll gravity. They didn't have like a lot of ability to shift um, pieces in the interior and, and to thin out some of the crowds. And the one thing that Goga does give you is, I mean, he's going to roll to the basket. 
I mean, it, his screen setting isn't always great, but that's who he is. And Jakar for the entire series logged four possessions as the role man. The rest of the time, everything he does comes off cuts because mainly he's just like a secondary option who's manufacturing angles under the basket. So yeah, like you say, it's, it's a factor of focusing on the here and now and getting as many wins as you can in the moment. But what does it do to you when you're not glancing too far into the future? And obviously they couldn't have known that Sabonis was going to have uh, plantar fasciitis, but Goga wasn't ready. And what is really the path to get him closer to being ready? Especially like now, I can't imagine that the NBA is probably going to have some bubble for a summer league this summer. So he's probably not going to get minutes that way. Like how, how are you preparing him to take the next step? So to hit you with the over under, I have set it at 15 minutes per game for next year. Oh, wow. And just to add a little bit of context, just so you know, and making an informed choice, Turner and Sabonis averaged 20 minutes per game together, and Sabonis averaged 14 at solo center, and Miles averaged a little over nine at solo center. So if that were to stay the same with whoever the new coach is, and if they didn't make choices, you'd be playing with about five minutes of center unless you're going to play Goga at the four, which they're just probably not going to do. So that's what you get to know going into this. Okay. Oh gosh. That's a great question. Um, I being uh, very optimistic or maybe not even optimistic is the right word, but just having a feeling about how this off season is going to go, I'm going to pound the over on that. Um, I think that, Obviously, one of the centers will get traded, and I think that this is the chance where Goga steps up, and uh, you probably just eat it for the first 20 games, 20, 30 games, while he develops into a backup role and trying to get more of a sense of how he fits into the team and how he works in an NBA offense and defense. Um, and then maybe they'll sign, a, you know, a, a, like, like we did with Kyle O'Quinn two years ago where you sign a guy who can come in and play, you know, a couple minutes if you have uh, foul trouble or something like that. But I think if I will be more surprised if Goga is not the backup center next year, than if Vic gets traded, you know, honestly, that sounds crazy to say, but I think I would be more surprised if, if Goga does not end up as the backup center next year, than if Vic doesn't get traded. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of, I mean, I don't know how to best verbalize this. I think when Kevin Pritchard does end of game pressers, he's very good at managing the message that he wants to put out there. So I know that he had said that Turner and Sabonis both indicated in exit interviews that they wanted to continue playing together. And, and I, I mean, I'm not either one of them. I don't know that. I do know that some of the interviews that miles gave during Orlando, when he was asked about like Sabonis being injured, his first reaction was like, well, I get to play my natural position at the five. I think if they both had their way, they would both get to be centers. Like, I'm not saying that there's some chemistry problem. I'm not insinuating that. But um, I think that you can't take too much away from Kevin Pritchard saying that because you're obviously not going to go to the media with regard to to Oladipo and the Turner Sabona situation and be like, oh, yeah, we want to move one of our bigs. And we're also – taking calls on what engaging the market on what it is for Victor right now. Like you're not going to outright say that that would be ridiculous, but I could also see a scenario where they do think that maybe like, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, but depending upon who the new coach is that they're like, well, all of this could look a lot different under a new coach and if Victor's healthy. So we're going to kick the can down the road a little bit and see how everything looks in a new system before we make a deal there. But yeah. I'm with you that I will take the over because I think ultimately that the too big situation has a bit of a limited ceiling, though I do think some of the coaches I've looked at could make it work more functionally than what we saw, but I, I don't think it's necessarily a playoff scenario. And I think that Goga, if given more opportunity, I think I overall believe in his potential to be able to 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 play backup center eventually. So I yeah. think I will take over 15 plus. I mean, if somebody gets injured or something, he could, he could average more minutes than that just with the roster, the way that it is. So I think the safe money's the over. Definitely. And I think the last thing I would say too, uh, I would be very disappointed if this doesn't end up as the over, because if you think about it, I mean, where the team took Goga and, and who else was on the board, 
Um, not to, you know, hindsight's obviously 2020. Brandon Clark is a guy who's, you know, immediate. He's an immediate help. And Goga, you see the long-term potential with him for sure. Um, and if the team were to continue with, with two bigs and to have Goga in a role where he's playing like eight minutes a game, if that, um, that would be, in my opinion, just kind of a misuse of a draft pick almost because you're hindering his development by doing that. Um, but we can move on to the next guy. Okay. Um, so The last guy. Yes, the last guy. So to close, uh, we're going to talk about Aaron Holiday. And I'm so excited. I'm excited to know I, what you've picked. I'm really excited because I, I love Aaron. I love Aaron so much. I love his game. And he – okay, so I think before we get into the play, uh, did anybody on the team – okay, obviously TJ Warren aside because he, he went supernova. Um, but did anybody on the team take a bigger step forward in their game than Aaron Holiday in the seeding games? We don't we can forget about the playoffs with him. But in the seeding games, Aaron was like a completely different player. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it with Aaron, which I'll be interested to see what angle you're going to take with this, but some of it with Aaron, I think, was a product of what role he was playing in the bubble versus what role he was sometimes getting shoehorned into based on what injuries were with the team. Like, I think that he showed, even though he's somewhat undersized, that he's going to be better able to thrive in the spot-up role getting in off of straight line drives and hitting spot up threes. Like, I mean, his little lefty floater driving in from the right side, whenever, you know, Brogdon or Victor would draw additional defenders and they would kick out to him. Like that was pretty much money throughout both series. I mean, he had, he had some hiccups in the playoffs, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I think that he shined more when he got off of decision-making and wasn't having to do so much on ball, which was somewhat the case. Like, you know, if he was starting games, they would start him at the one and he was doing a lot more in the pick and roll. And also when he was off the bench, sometimes he and TJ McConnell would share some of that responsibility, even though he was playing off ball. I think it just constrains him a little bit more and lets him just, get into an easier flow where he can find gaps when he's not the one having to decide who to get involved and where the ball needs to be and and what decision he has to make. I mean, he can still do some of that, but I mean, definitely in the playoffs, he only logged three possessions in the playoffs as the pick and roll ball handler. Like the rest of the time, I think he shot like 57, 44, 57 from the field, 44 from three for that series. And he was mainly used around the other TJ Brogdon and Oladipo in the starting lineup, but yeah. So what do you have? Yeah. So I actually, I cheated a little bit. I have two plays that kind okay. of coincide. That's all right. That's all right. Cheat. But um, the, the thing that I took away the most and that was most pertinent in my mind that I remember, because I remember I, as soon as it happened, I like tweeted it out. I was like, did this really just happen? Um, so from December, uh, I believe it was December 17th, uh, Aaron holiday isos on LeBron James spins oh, yeah. left and hits a layup uh, that was key to, to winning the game. So I believe it was in the fourth quarter. Um, that to me is, it, it'll coincide with my number a little bit, but I mean, that's huge for him. Not, you know, you're not going to drive on LeBron James every time and, and get, get a bucket. Um, but my point is that is so instrumental for Aaron moving forward to develop that comfortability and confidence that he showed in that game. Cause I think um, he had December was the best month of basketball he's played as a pacer. Um, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but that was when he, he started for, I think 10 games in a row. Mm-hmm. So you talk about his role actually being defined. He's a starter, he's running, running things. Um, and he's, he's got this certain amount asked out of him and he did a tremendous job with, it. and you can talk about, of course, uh, they didn't play like a crazy difficult uh, schedule, um, but just the, him thriving in that role and playing a consistent role was really huge for what he was doing. Yeah, and I think during that time, like I remember, I think that's around the time where he had his, his one of his better games of the season against the Nets. He mm-hmm. played with his, I mean, to put it simply, like he was playing with his head up more, like he was seeing the floor better during that month of the year and really looked encouraging. Like I know I just kind of, ragged on him a bit with um, his decision making but and that month in particular it looked like he was going to have better success um, being shaped and I know we don't really want to use traditional um, positional markers here but like as a point guard and some of that went up and down I mean he's prone to having high highs and low lows 
And I think that the role that he settled into in the bubble made sense. But like you mm-hmm. said, in December, he definitely had some moments there. I don't think he ever really lacks for confidence. Like that's the one thing sometimes I can get the best of him. I think he can do a little <laughs> bit yes. more than he's within, but yeah, like sizing up LeBron and, and going ISO and getting to the basket was definitely, I would agree. That's a seminal moment for Aaron holiday. Um, in his second season. Yeah, definitely. And I think I phrased it wrong. I wouldn't say confidence. I think it's more just like, like we mentioned, knowing his role, because mm-hmm. I think there's, it's the same thing that's happened with miles. And we'll get into that obviously in, in future episodes, but just having that uh, confusion of what you're doing in your role. And I think that's important to be ironed out. But the second play um, was against the Lakers again, but in the bubble, um, Aaron's defense, and it's not just one play. It is, you know, a multitude of possessions, um, when he played some incredible defense, uh, getting out in front of uh, like just pretty much super hedging pick and rolls to get out in front of them right. and to avoid getting switched on to. And I think that was huge because, again, along with his ability to finish at the rim, that's huge for him. He's he's a much better defender than I think he's gotten credit for. Um, you know, people just look at his, his size and they're like, oh, well, he's going to be a negative defender. A, I think he's one of the stronger guards in the league. He's got an incredibly durable frame. He's just very strong at the point of attack. Um, but his ability to 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 know what he needs to do and do it correctly. Um, I mean, we would see a ton of guys who are the same age go out there and get cooked doing that. Um, so his ability to to not just get completely killed on switches like that was huge. Um, and I'm I'm excited for that moving forward for sure. Because I remember that was like that was the entire defensive game plan. Uh, they doubled AD. Anytime he got the ball inside the arc and they switched the crap out of everything to keep Aaron from, I mean, not switch. They avoided the show and recovered. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I wrote about that at the end of the game because everybody was talking about TJ Warren. I was like, you know, don't ignore what Aaron holiday's contribution was Mm -hmm. because they were using him to, like you say, step out and show to slow LeBron. And then he was recovering back to his guy and then Brogdon would go back to LeBron. But, and a piece of that was that TJ Warren was doing a really good job stunning toward the nail. But yeah. Um, yeah, you bring up a good point with that with that comment because they weren't giving up that switch, which is harder to do. I mean, is, is easier to do when you're playing up top with those kind of like side-to-side screens that LeBron was calling for. And then when they got into the playoffs, like he struggled with foul trouble. Aaron did. I mean, mm-hmm. in game one, he had the quick three fouls. I went back and looked at these. Because um, two of them were against Drogic and one of them was against Jimmy on a switch. And then in game two, he had another quick two fouls. Both were against Crowder. And then in the next game, he had another quick two fouls, fouling Hero on a three and then Jimmy on a switch. And there, I mean, I suspected that, that the Heat would go to that. I remember we talked about that on one of the pods that Jimmy would look to screen there. Like what I said earlier about Edmund Sumner and, and Brogdon, was that Edmund Sumner, you could put him to hound the ball with Goran and then switch over to Jimmy, and you weren't really losing that much there. Like, the Pacers were giving up that switch against Crowder, and he he just couldn't hold up. And even if they were going to give up the switch because it's harder to, to – I mean, you're not going to show and recover as easier when somebody's getting you in the post there. I, I still think from the very beginning that they needed to add a scram switch into their portfolio for that series so that Aaron wasn't getting into so much early foul trouble because you weren't just losing him in the starting lineup. I mean, in game one, I think he ended up finishing. I don't know if he had four or five fouls, but he kept – he'd he come five. in. It was, it was very piecemeal because he would come in, get another foul, and then he'd have to go back out. And it, it disrupted his rhythm a bit. And then he had kind of those two defensive breakdowns where – he left Gorin to go tag kind of inexplicably at the end of game one and then gave up that offensive rebound. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think he's pretty strong and I liked what they did in that Lakers series. And I don't necessarily blame Aaron for getting these switches. I just thought that it was kind of a miscalculation by the Pacers that they weren't looking at using Miles Turner to scram him out of those mismatches or when Victor got similar ones because he had uh, – same problem he just wasn't scrapping and clawing they were just easily getting around him in the post and scoring a couple times yeah exactly and I think oh he I mean Aaron got a lot of heat for that and obviously more people got heat as well but um I thought it was just so confusing and I think that's kind of one of the things that I've started to pick up on more as I watched the game um and noticing what makes somebody a better coach and and not not to smirch Nate and and what he does because he is I mean I still think he's a good coach just the things didn't work out of course um but you look at like Miami came in with very set ideas on how they were going to attack Indiana 
and Indiana came in with, okay, we're going to be doing what's been working for us and, and go from there. And I think the great coaches come in ready with adjustments automatically on, and shifting what they're going to do. Not to say that the Pacers didn't have those, but I think going back, there's no way that you can start Aaron in that series, or at least you have to have, like you mentioned, with the scram switches. And if people have not seen a scram switch, watch what Boston does with Kemba. It's incredible. Um, their scram switching has been instrumental in them having such a good defense. Um, but yeah, I thought Aaron just got totally killed with that matchup in, against Jay Crowder. And it was confusing that, that we ended up with Aaron in the starting lineup, but alas, we can go to my one number. Um, my one number is 54, uh, and specifically 54% at the rim, which is in the 24th percentile among guards, uh, per cleaning the glass. And I think that, for me, you know, we mentioned that a little bit earlier uh, when talking about the ISO on LeBron. That's huge for Aaron because I think if he's going to become a more efficient guard and a guy who can collapse the defense a little bit more, um, he has to become more effective at the rim. And I think that's going to be a little bit through seeking more contact um, and maybe not going to his floater as much um, because I think he has a tendency to – it's difficult too. I mean, he's six foot, six foot one. So it's harder to get up a layup on somebody who's bigger than you. But I think if he was able to use his body and his shoulders a little bit more um, to, to try and uh, bump guys off their rhythm a little bit, just uh, maybe he could learn a little bit from TJ and the way that TJ gets inside and uses his elbows and his shoulder uh, deceptively without getting a foul call um, in order to, to get a little bit of space. I think that would be huge for him. Yeah, I'd like to know what that number ended up being filtered. Um if he showed any improvement, because I think it was close to 60% uh, from in Orlando. Um, yeah. In Orlando. Yeah. Cause it seemed like he got better getting into the basket and being able to finish than what we had seen prior to the four months off. Like he did seem like he, he took that time to improve some of those skills, but I agree with you. Like he's, we, we knew when he was drafted that he would be able to thrive as a catch and shoot player, even though, he hit a few skids. He had a few um, dry patches from three, especially from like January to the end of March. But like, we know that he has that in his arsenal that he can be mm -hmm. a catch and shoot guy, but he still needed to develop around the rim. And I thought he showed a little bit of progress with that, even though it obviously wasn't on high volume, but in the role that they were using. So what do you have for the over under for him? The over under is 56 and that's percentage for true shooting to see if he, cause he was, uh, just over 50% true shooting in his first year. He was around 51 or 52% true shooting this year. Um, and so I think for him to become a better guard, he just has to become efficient. Uh, obviously, I mean, he's great from three. And like we talked about, uh, I don't love his shot selection from, from his floaters. I really would just like, I mean, he can hit his floaters right. sometimes, but uh, the floaters that he takes from a little bit farther out are um, right. not, yeah. not, not pretty. Um, yeah, so sometimes think, it's a product of he comes off the pick and roll and he doesn't make the best decision with his guy in rear view pursuit and he can get knocked or that guy can mm -hmm. get back into the picture. But yeah. So would you take the over at, over or under on him hitting 56? Cause that's just about league average. Tell me again what he was this year. Uh, it was about 52%. Uh, I think it was 51 and a half to be. Well, exact. I mean, some of it's interesting too, because I'm not entirely sure what his role is next year. Yeah. Like, I don't know if we completely touched on this, but um, like let's envision this roster is fully healthy and they, they don't make any changes like, and you're going back to double big. Then you're looking at Aaron being most likely either back playing next to TJ McConnell, or if for some reason the new coach is like, you know, we're going to use TJ McConnell as a backup point guard. Cause I want to develop Aaron. Then Aaron is the backup point guard. And I might lean even though I, I think that he'll probably continue to get better, I might lean towards the under because he's going to be playing back in that in the role of, of lead guard, even though he's going to be going against bench players. But if they make a move and they end up playing smaller, then that might open up more opportunities with him next to Brogdon and Victor, even just in hybrid lineup. So I feel like my decision is somewhat uh, contingency or conditional. But Hmm, this is a tough one. I know. I, I pull out a good one. I think I personally would lean the under two, but I don't think it'll be too much under. I could see him right. like a decent jump, especially like like we just talked about, looking at what he did in the bubble. Um, 
I think his three wasn't as good, but obviously it's small sample size, uh, only eight games. Um, I'm, I don't know. I think uh, I agree that a lot depends on what role he has. Cause I think, I mean, there's a feasible way where Aaron is the starting, starting at the one next year. I don't know if I love that for, for him or the team. Um, and I mean, he could theoretically be the sixth man or he could be the eighth man in the rotation. I mean, it's, um, so, I mean, you got to factor Jeremy in. Like, I yeah. can't see that. I can't see the new coach bumping. Like, even if Victor was moved, I mean, and, and then you'd even have to think, like, what are they getting in return for Victor? Because that could be, you know, some guard. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. I mean, a, a guard that's part of the picture, perhaps. But um, I can't imagine that they would move. Even though Brogdon was somewhat overextended, I would think that Brogdon would still be handling quite a bit even if Aaron was playing with him. But, I mean, mm. Jeremy, too. I mean, I think Jeremy probably settles in most naturally in, like, a six-man bench role where you can feed him to be able to be, you know, sometimes against switches or just getting his own offense. I think that that fits better in a bench role. But, I mean, a, a lot's up in the air. But I think I would probably lean slightly under, but I think that he did get better in Orlando than what we had seen. I would totally agree. And I think the last question I want to ask you, though, uh, what do you think, obviously saying what a player's ceiling is, is uh, that's, you know, it's all subjective. Uh, so it's it's hard to gauge that. But like in terms of Aaron with the Pacers moving forward, what do you think his um, the most likely or the most likely outcome that that's reasonable that you would want to see happen for him? Hmm. Again, that's tough. I feel like I'm just dead air here. No, you're good. Um, um, well, again, it, it, some of it goes back to Malcolm and 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 Oladipo because I think as long as they're there, he's probably going to be locked into somewhat of a backup role. And I mean, it, he's not going to be taking more possessions. I mean, I think too that I mean we'll get into this in later pods, but T.J. Warren is probably going to get more on ball reps. I mean, he showed he could handle that. He showed that he could take on more of a role. Mm -hmm. So then where does some of that come from with Aaron? Because it's not even just a matter of the starting lineup. It's a matter of what other lineups they're playing with. I think he has somewhat of a, a limited ceiling with the Pacers just by virtue of what other guys are around him. Like they're all on a similar timeline to, to, to grow, but I'm not sure that he's going to be the guy that's getting a bunch of the touches to do that. I remember I did the math. I forget which article I was even writing. Cause somebody said, Oh, Oh, it was when Sabonis was no, who was out. Oh, I remember what it was. Sorry for all these departures. Listeners. <laughs> Victor was at the time saying that he wasn't going to play in the bubble. So I wanted to look at whose usage got affected the most and the games that Victor didn't start when Aaron was the starter versus once Victor came back and Aaron's usage was was in the teens and Brogdon and Sabonis's both saw the biggest biggest jump and Miles stayed relatively the same because I think a lot of people assume that Miles would you know get more touches without Victor there and then especially once Sabonis went down but um, I'm just not sure that a lot of the touches will get filtered to Aaron based on things that we saw from TJ Warren and what else they're doing. So I feel like it's somewhat capped, but I think he can get better with the amount that he's already doing. Like, I think he can still improve and, and what decisions he makes, whether he's playing spot up or on the ball and can still get better as a player, but I'm not sure he's going to take like a big leap unless some major opportunity opens up. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot to look forward to with Aaron, though. I, I really liked the improvements he made. Um, and it's just interesting to look at, too, because I, I don't know how much um, validity there was to it. But obviously, there were the mentions of him potentially going to Minnesota uh, for draft compensation back. So obviously, I mean, he's coveted around the league and should be. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I think there's a there's a lot to look at. And uh, we will be back next uh, next Thursday recording, having having another Friday episode up. Uh, Caitlin, I'm I'm really excited and looking forward to the rest of this. Uh, you working on anything else or you got anything cool that you want people to know about before we get out of here? 
Well, I know somebody made a joke in the comments, which I appreciated about like the 37 coaching profiles I've ever <laughs> written. And I will not have written 37 coaching profiles, even if the Pacers list expands to like 40 names. Like basically by rule of thumb, I've kind of decided for myself that for the people who are assistants who didn't like have film that I could look at at the G League level, I'm not really looking heavily into those guys. That doesn't mean that like I personally think, oh, that person can't make the leap. It's just that and for me as a writer and the type of writing that I do, there's not really a lot for me to assess there. So just other than the basic posts that we wrote, introducing those names, unless somebody like were too advanced to a second interview, there's not going to be a lot for me to say, but for some of the other head coaches, I do have one um, person that I've kind of zeroed in on that I'm hopeful to have done by next week while we're continuing to work on these and hopefully everybody made it to the end of this without thinking oh gosh that was like the worst podcast format i've ever listened to if if that's what you thought then then you can hit us up in the comments and let us know hopefully you liked the way that we went about approaching the end of season reviews yeah, I thought this was fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one. To uh, to everyone listening at home, please be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify. And, of course, read us over at Indie Cornrows. Thank you for listening. Send us any of your feedback, questions, comments, anything. Have a good rest of your day.